0: Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Manke. Listener discretion advised. One quick note before we begin, Noble Blood is on Patreon. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com/noblebloodtales. It's where I upload scripts and bonus episodes like I watch period pieces with my friends once a month and talk about everything they get right and wrong. And also, a brand new feature which is if you subscribe at, you know, a medium level, you get to join our quarterly sticker club. Every season, we drop a new exclusive sticker just for Patreon subscribers, available nowhere else, and you just get a brand new sticker every season that like an amazing artist designs. They're very cool. I love stickers, which is why I did it. But yeah, so, uh, support the Patreon for bonus episode scripts, stickers, and more. Uh, but of course, as always, the best possible support is just that you're listening to the show. So thank you so much. In 1908, a researcher was going through the archives in the Royal Library in Copenhagen. He was an anthropologist named Richard Peachman, but we don't actually know specifically what he was looking for in the library that day. But I think we can probably assume that he had spent a long time in the dusty aisles of the archives. Hours, days, even weeks... His eyes were probably going bleary from hours staring at narrow, cursive script. I imagine his hands slivered with paper cuts and his mind wrecked with exhaustion. And then, perhaps snuck on the bottom of a shelf or hidden within a large folio, Richard saw something strange, something that looked unfamiliar and out of place. The German anthropologist pulled the artifact from where it had sat for decades, and he brushed the dust away. It was 1,200 pages, a document written halfway around the world, meant for the king of Spain. And the document had made a long and circuitous journey. It had been stuck unseen within library collections, been bought and sold and inherited passed through the hands of historians and collectors without anyone truly understanding what they were looking at, until it came here. The Royal Library in Copenhagen, of all places, where a German anthropologist stumbled upon it nearly five centuries after it had been written. The document, at nearly 1,200 pages long, is really more of a tome than a document at all. And though it ended up in Denmark, it actually had nothing to do with Denmark at all. It's called El Primer Nueva Coronica y Buen Gobierno, or the first new chronicle of good government. And it's one of the most important historical tools we have for understanding the culture of the Inca people in Peru and their lives both before and during the occupation of the Spanish conquistadors. Written by a man named Guaman Poma, the text is, at once, funny and deadly serious. He wrote it as a plea to the Spanish king, so that he might understand the harm that the colonists had been doing, and the abuses of power that the Catholic missionaries had been doing in the name of their god. Poma's missive likely never even reached his intended target. But now, years later, we can read his message through time, and understand what he was saying in a way that King Philip never would have understood. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. Francisco Pizarro was on the expedition that crossed the Isthmus of Panama in the 16th century making him one of the first Europeans to ever see the Pacific Ocean. He tried twice to invade and conquer Peru, and he succeeded on his third attempt, in the name of his native Spain. There were two especially important factors working in Pizarro's favor, a war of succession happening at the time within the Inca Empire, and smallpox that the Europeans brought with them. In 1535, Pizarro built the now Spanish capital of Peru at Lima, the center of his and Spain's imperial power in what was now a viceroyalty. Possibly that very same year, Guaman Poma was born. On both sides of his family tree, Poma was noble, his mother was descended from Inca royalty, and his father was royal through a link to the dynasty that preceded the Incas. We don't know exactly when Pomo was born, but we know that he grew up in parallel with the Spanish invasion. His nation was literally being reformed from under him, politically and spiritually. His older half-brother became a priest and converted the family to Christianity. It's through that connection that Poma, who was a native speaker of the language Gechua, learned Spanish and also learned how to read and write. Poma became something between a friend and an assistant to the friar Martin de Marua, a Spaniard who would end up writing the first illustrated history of Peru. It's likely from his time spent with Martin de Murua that Poma honed his own skills as an artist, although he was never formally trained. But Poma's ability to speak multiple languages served him in adulthood when he began working as an administrator within the government of the Viceroyalty. At least until he got in political trouble. The details of the legal case are a little difficult to parse out, but in 1594, Poma represented his family in a land dispute about a claim on a parcel of land outside the town of Huamanga, which would have been entitled to them given their noble lineage. The case became a legal quagmire, lasting for six years, coming back again and again with a verdict against Poma and his family. Eventually, Poma was accused of either misrepresenting or outright lying about his family's lineage in order to take the land illegally. As punishment, he was sentenced to 200 lashes and two years of exile from the town of Huamanga. The experience... Both the ordeal of the trial and the humiliating punishment affected Poma greatly. He felt that he had suffered a tremendous injustice, and he began working in his own way toward creating a more just world. He started by helping represent other indigenous people in lawsuits, and by traveling as a missionary with his friar friend Martin de Murat and helping to convert the native people of the Andes. Around this time, Poma also began writing his letter to the King of Spain, telling him the story of his people and explaining what the Spanish invaders had gotten right and what they had gotten very, very wrong. During his travels with Martín de Marúa, Poma was helping him with his chronicles by providing some illustrations. But we know from Poma's own writings that, even though he valued having access to the friar's library, he had a miserable time doing that work. I imagine it's much the same for any creative person trying to work on an independent project when their boss is demanding that they spend their creative energy on something that they, the boss, will get all the credit for. El primer Nueva Coronica y Buen Gobierno took nearly a decade and a half for Guaman Poma. It was started in 1600 and likely wasn't fully completed until 1615, and boy, oh boy, Is it a real tome. The open letter contains 1,189 pages and 398 drawings that were done in black and white in a simple style that would lend itself well to mass printing. The text too is formatted with the conventions of typesetting. Poma had imagined that after King Philip III of Spain read it, he would want the Nueva Cronica widely distributed. Now, let's take a brief detour to talk about King Philip III of Spain. The historian J.H. Eliot gives us a particularly colorful quote, describing the monarch as, quote, a pallid, anonymous creature whose only virtue appeared to reside in a total absence of vice. I will say... King Philip's looks weren't his fault. He was a Habsburg, and he fulfills all of the stereotypes of inbreeding that go along with it. His father had been the son of two first cousins, and he married his own niece, who also had cousin parents. And, surprise, surprise, our Philip III would also marry a first cousin, though once removed. At this point, the family tree was resembling more of a tumbleweed, Ultimately, Philip III's grandson would be the end of the Spanish Habsburg line. That grandson would be deeply unwell in basically every regard and unable to procreate. His autopsy would memorably observe that upon death, quote, his heart was the size of a peppercorn, his lungs corroded, his intestines rotten and gangrenous. He had a single testicle, black as coal and his head was full of water. But that nightmare child was still years away during Philip III's reign, during which the biological potency of the Habsburgs and the power of Spain were both in decline. Though Philip did rule over the imperialistic boom of the Spanish Empire, and he did lead a few successful early campaigns in the Thirty Years' War, Economic trouble would prove to be impossible to shake, and Spain's time as a global superpower would soon be drawing to a close. But for the time being, Spain was ruling over Peru, and Guamanpoma wanted to create a document that would serve both as a history of the Andean civilization that had been swallowed by the Spanish conquistadors, and also to explain the damage that Europeans were doing in the king's name and in the name of the church. Guaman Poma was Christian, which meant that he was all too aware of the rampant abuses of power among missionaries and those in positions of power. The first two-thirds of the thousand-plus page tome are an attempt to teach King Philip III that the Andean civilizations were complex, sophisticated, and elegant in their structures. The last third of the document, titled Buen Gobierno, would then explain how all of that was destroyed by the Spanish. The Nuevo Cronica is structurally an incredibly ambitious and complex document that blends a number of literary genres and styles of art, to say nothing of the way that it jumps between Spanish, Latin, and two languages of native Andean people, Quechua and Aymara. The drawings are composed using European rules of representation and space, but with the sort of lines that evoke the way Inca decoration is done, with abstract geometric shapes. The purpose of those juxtaposed styles wasn't to be slapdash, it was to make a clear evocative point about the merging and crashing of these two cultures, like tectonic plates meeting and creating fissures in the earth. Take, for instance, one of the illustrations of a map done in the style of the ones that were done in Europe in the 16th century. You can sort of picture it, right, with Europe at the center of the map, the seas vast, and with fantastical monsters like dragons and unicorns along the edges. Poma's map has all of that too, but he has Peru at the center of the world, and the map is centered not on Lima, the capital of colonial Peru, But on Cuzco, the capital of the Inca Empire. The top of the map has the coats of arms of the pope and the Spanish kingdom, but above that, even higher, are the deities of the Inca, the moon goddess and the sun god, Inti. It's fascinating, but there is sort of a challenge when the message is meant to be filtered through both Inca and Spanish understanding of symbols. Almost no one in the 1600s would have been able to understand the full meaning of what Guaman Poma was trying to communicate. And almost no one would know all of the languages that would be required to read the whole book. But by speaking the Spaniards' language, both literally and in terms of the layout of the drawings and structures of the essays, Guaman Poma was using a tool that's fairly common in debate meeting someone at their level in order to persuade them of something. He was acknowledging the basic premises of the Spanish worldview in order to point out their hypocrisies. It's a persuasive strategy. And Poma also uses another strategy, humor. His book, once you understand the symbols, is very funny. One of the drawings is basically a political cartoon In it, an Inca asks what the Spanish eat. The response, gold. But the book is also a tremendously serious work of scholarship, and it's important to our academic understanding of what pre-colonial Incan life was like. Even though Guaman Poma was writing a generation after Spanish arrival, and even though he had never really known life before they came to Peru, he is an invaluable source. The Inca had had an advanced recording system. It was written using knots on cords, but researchers still struggle to fully translate it. Guamanpoma's writing, even if it isn't exactly firsthand, is still an essential guide to pre-colonial Inca culture. Some of that cultural information is incredibly basic. One of Poma's illustrations shows that both men and women were planting potatoes. We learn from that about their division of labor and that the planting season was in December. And he's also giving us important history. One illustration depicts the beheading of the Inca leader Sapa Inca Atualpa, who defeated his brother in civil war to claim the throne to the Inca Empire after the death of their father but who was later than captured by Pizarro. Though Atahualpa converted to Christianity and a ransom was raised for his release, the Spaniards still executed him. Poma's drawing shows Atahualpa tied to a flat table, held down by multiple European men. A Spanish soldier holds a knife at the leader's neck with a mallet in his other hand, ready to strike a fatal blow. Atahualpa clutches a cross in his hands. Below are the words, Andean nobles lament the killing of their innocent lord. It was a clear indictment of the cruelty of the Spanish conquistadors, but unfortunately, Poma's message likely never reached King Philip of Spain. The book would have circulated among the court in Lima before traveling to Spain but it ended up forgotten somewhere in a collection of rare documents that was eventually traded or gifted to the library in Copenhagen. But still, Guaman Poma's message reached us. We now know the stories and structures of the Inca before the Spanish arrived. We can see the depictions of what the Spanish did. Guaman Poma did tell his story to the Western world, we just received it a few hundred years late. That's the story of Guaman Palma and the Nuevo Coronica, but keep listening after a brief sponsor break to hear a little bit more about the symbolism in one of his drawings. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found quince, now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and honestly my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince dot com slash noble rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill Two. drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway and now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just 49 dollars Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. There's a notion in Inca culture that towns are divided, both physically and socially, into two halves. There's the lower half and the upper half, known as Hurin and Hanan. Those halves are symbolically associated with left and right. In one of Guaman Poma's drawings, the Pope is standing on the left-hand side of the page, with the King of Spain kneeling on the right. That was fairly confusing to me. The left side is considered the lower side, and Guaman Poma would have always believed that the church is higher than the king, The king would have believed that, too. And in the drawing, the king is kneeling. So why would the pope be on the left? Well, he is on the left. The reader's left. But if you were in the picture, looking out, the pope is standing on the right, with the king kneeling to his left. It's another little element that needs to be decoded, and it's also a little inadvertent reminder that Sometimes we need to change our perspectives around. There's another little Easter egg in the drawing. Guaman Poma put himself in the drawing. Small as a figure, smaller than the king, and kneeling down below him. But if you're looking at it from the drawing's perspective, Guaman Poma drew himself in the king's superior position, to the king's right. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is hosted by me, Dana Schwartz. Additional writing and researching done by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sunder, and Lori Goodman. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio,